Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Motley Fool's Industry Focus Financials Edition. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining us on the phone is John Maxfield. This week, we're going to be talking about competitive advantage. Um, specifically, we're going to be discussing Michael Porter's work. He's a pretty fantastic economist um, with a book titled Competitive Advantage, um, very appropriately. Um, but we're in D.C. right now, and we're not super creative people when it comes to titles, so I really appreciate a title that just is what it's about. So let's let's talk a little bit about what competitive advantage is. Um, Porter defines it as a function of either providing comparable buyer value more efficiently than competitors, which is low cost, or performing activities at comparable cost but in unique ways that create more buyer value than competitors and hence command a premium price, which is differentiation. Either of those things help companies um, maintain an advantage over their competitors and thus provide them with a wider profit margin. So, and, and, and Gabby, if you think about it, right, one of the guys that, if you're an investor, one of the people that you read about, that you think about, that you in some ways try to learn from and mimic is Warren Buffett. He's the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. And, and one of the things that Buffett says in his letters, which are just really quite amazing things for investors to read, is that the most important, single most important thing when identifying a good investment that's going to outperform both its industry and the broader market in general over the long term is identifying companies with a, quote, durable competitive advantage. And what Michael Porter does, so the question is, is, well, is this just Warren Buffett's, you know, kind of spouting out another awesome quote because, I mean, he literally has millions of them in his letters, or is there more substance to this, right? This, this concept of competitive advantage, is there a model that investors can then find and then follow to identify companies that have this. And there is, and the person that really kind of the, 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 the godfather, if you will, of competitive advantage writing and literature is this, is this Porter and his book, Competitive Advantage, is really where he spells this out. Absolutely. And one of the things that I do want to po- point out about that Buffett quote is that Warren Buffett talks a lot actually about, um, he, he frames it in terms of an economic moat, which means that companies have this like sustainable advantage. Um, Michael Porter kind of helps identify uh, maybe in the short term things that will help the company um, uh, succeed over other companies. But Buffett is really looking for, and you can use Michael Porter's forces to do this as well, Buffett is really looking for companies that can succeed over the long term and can uh, maintain those things that differentiate them. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, Gabby. I, I would not um, put those as mutually exclusive things. Oh, I would say not. that what Porter does is he adds substance. So he's they're talking about the exact same thing, but he's taking it to he's taking it to an analytical level. He's breaking it down and saying, look, this is this is how you identify competitive advantage. And and let me just reiterate. So the reason competitive advantage matters so much, and durable competitive advantage in particular, is because a company that has an advantage over its competitors is able to earn more money than them, right? I mean, this sounds like so, so obvious, there's no point even saying, but the reason they're able to earn more money than them is because that competitive advantage either does one of two things. Either it allows them to earn more revenue than their competitors relative to the expenses that it costs to generate that revenue. So you have a wider margin, and then if you have that wider margin, you can then price your products right for less than your competitors. Well, if you can price your products for less than your competitors, you're going to sell more of those products, right? 
So that's that's one component. The other component is is on the cost. So if you can generate the same revenue with a lower cost base, the same exact principle comes through, right? You have a wider profit margin, which would then allow you to price your products or services at a more competitive level relative to your competitors. So so that is and then so then if you follow that wide profit margin all the way through the financial statements, what you'll see is that then it gives you the opportunity to generate a higher return on equity. And if you can generate a higher return on equity over a sustainable period, your shareholder returns are going to be higher than both your industry and the broader market at large. And so that's why identifying competitive advantage is such a critical thing for investors to be able to do. Absolutely. Um, so, if we if we want to round back up to Michael Porter's book, um, he describes five different forces. They're often referred to as Porter's five forces for uh, assessing an industry's kind of dynamics when it comes to competitiveness. Um, those are I'm just going to list them out, and then we'll circle back and talk to them. Um, the level of competition amongst participant participants who are within the industry, um, the power of a buyer to price a product, the power of suppliers to affect um, the product entry barriers and the threat of substitutes. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, let's say that, well, let's start out with this. So Porter breaks the analysis down into two different component pieces, right? You have the competitive dynamics of an industry, right? There are some industries that have characteristics that make them more prone to allowing the companies they're in to have durable competitive advantages. And those are the five, those five components that you talked about. Those five components ex- kind of are, is what an investor would use to assess an industry. So let's talk about an industry, two different industries in particular to kind of flesh these things out. You have restaurants, right? So we have McDonald's going along, really struggling a lot recently. A lot of their franchise owners are, are, are complaining about the overemphasis on the value menu because you're, you know, you're selling things for a buck fifty, a dollar that they used to be able to you know, sell for twice that, and there just isn't a lot of margin in that. Well, and the reason Mark McDonald's is struggling in the margin category is because the restaurant business doesn't have just as a, as an industry, it doesn't have large entry barriers. Anybody can start a restaurant. It was, if you know how to cook and you can get a little capital together to buy, you know, you know, to rent a place and to put a stove in and stuff like that, you can start a restaurant. So the fact that so many people can come into it is driving those margins down and making it difficult for even an established industry player like McDonald's to get along in that regard. Now, let's talk about a, kind of another dynamic that impacts this. Chip making. So you have Intel, right? I live in Portland, Oregon. This is not where Intel is based, but Intel has a, this is where a large chunk of their manufacturing facilities are based. And when you drive by these things, in fact, my brother-in-law works for them, and when you drive by these facilities, I mean, these are enormous. And then when you see like the Intel commercials online and you see the sophistication of the technology that is in one of these, well, what that makes it clear is that, look, I, you and I, Gabby, let's say you and I wanted to start a business. I, God, I would, God forbid you'd have to start a business with me. That would be a miserable, <laughs> miserable experience for you. But let's say we want to start a business. Well, you know, let's say we could get a couple hundred thousand dollars in capital together to start this business. Well, it, it would take billions of dollars of capital, right, to get into the chip-making business that, that Intel is in. And so you have that huge entry barrier to the industry itself that allows Intel or has allowed Intel over the decades to generate such a wide profit margin. So that's that first piece of the analysis, that looking at the industry. That's true. Um, I will say for our listeners out there who are a little bit more well-versed in 
uh, technology. I just got schooled by our technology editor maybe 10 minutes ago about Intel. Apparently there is, um, out of China, there's a, a lot more chip makers now. Um, so Intel is actually starting to to struggle to maintain its its hold on, on its market share. But, That's exactly right. Now, hmm? but th- this is a relatively new thing. And these are, you know, China's kind of a, a new entrant to the market. So the dynamics are certainly changing for Intel. But where Intel really makes its money on that cutting edge stuff, it still does have advantage. But to your point, will it, is it durable? Not necessarily, right? But it is certainly a competitive advantage. Right. Um, I'm sorry, I believe I interrupted you. You're about to go into the, the second component that, you're, that you want to talk about. Yeah, so the, the second piece of Porter's analysis. So you look at the industry overall. And another industry to kind of think about in this regard is just providing positive competitive dynamics is the utilities, right? Your, your water companies, your electric companies, even like your waste management companies like that. So waste management picks up our garbage, right? But it's not like waste management can, can compete with, is, is competing with, say, the Portland Garbage Service to pick up more garbage. No, the city of Portland actually gives waste management an exclusive license to operate in certain areas. I don't know if it's the whole city or if it's certain areas of the city or how that works, but you're giving a, a monopoly for a specific industry segment to a company in the utility sector. And that monopoly allows them to earn higher profits so long as they're able to operate efficiently. So that's kind of another kind of, you know, to, to kind of uh, observation point to throw into your analysis when you're thinking about uh, competitive, competitive dynamics on an industry level. Now, the second piece of Porter's analysis looks at the companies themselves, right? So once you've assessed an industry for its competitive dy- dynamics, then you want to get in there and assess the com- whether or not the specific companies in that industry have a durable competitive advantage. And he talks about two different ways that a company can acquire that. The first is through cost, low cost. Think about Geico here, right? Geico is able to save 15, spend 15 minutes, save 15% of your car insurance. Well, the reason Geico insurance is so much cheaper, and Geico, for the record, is a subsidiary Berkshire Hathaway, and there's not a coincidence there that it has a strong competitive advantage and that Berkshire Hathaway bought it, you can rest assured. But the reason that Geico is able to operate and sell their insurance products for less than their competitors is because they don't have offices all around the country, like, say, State Farm. So they, can op- they operate much less expensively and can therefore sell their products less expensively. So that's a competitive advantage. On the cost side, Wells Fargo is the same exact thing. Thing, right in the banking sector. This company has earned outstanding returns for decades now, and it's been able to make it through a lot of these crises that have otherwise hobbled its competitors. And why has it been able to do all of these things? It is my analysis of Wells Fargo that the reason it has been able to outperform its competitors is because it has a pricing advantage. Keeping costs low is in Wells Fargo's DNA, and that comes through loud and clear in its shareholder returns over time. So you have that cost piece of the competitive advantage on the company level. That's the first element. The second element in, in the company-specific level is differentiating your product, making your product uniquely appealing in some way, shape, or form that differentiates it from the competitors and allows you to generate wider margins from it. And I think this is a lot more intuitive for people to, to, to grasp um, because pricing structures can kind of be hidden. People maybe don't think about them as much. But um, for example, say you're in the CVS, are you going to reach for Band-Aid or are you going to reach for CVS adhesive wound stopper? 
Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're going to reach is, for the Johnson and Johnson product, which is Band-Aid. Everyone knows about Band-Aid or Coca-Cola. Are you going to buy Coca-Cola or are you going to buy supermarket soda? Which is fine. Supermarket soda is pretty much the same thing as Coca-Cola. But people have uh, brands have um, managed to, to create this kind of like um, trust amongst consumers where they are able to charge consumers more because people will, without thinking about it, reach for their products before other people's. Yeah. I mean, and this is my, when I think about differentiating a product, when you say Coke, I mean, that is like the textbook example, right? Let me, and let me give you an example. So my wife is like ridiculously frugal, right? We literally, <laughs> we do not use a full roll of paper towels for, it takes us a year and a half or maybe even longer to go through. A whole, I mean, that she is so, I could go through just a, a number of examples uh, to give you. And, you know, she's all about buying generics and all this type of thing. But so we had a gathering at our house a couple weeks ago, and her whole family came over. And she sent me out to do the shopping, which is always an enormous mistake. But she, I go out, and I, I figure I'm looking. I'm in the soda aisle, and I'm thinking, well, what would I do if I was Jamila, which is my wife's name? And I think, well, I definitely got to go with with the generic, right? Because like, if I sat down and did a blind taste test, and I guarantee you, you'd probably be the same. Basically, everybody else would be the same. We couldn't tell the difference between generic cola and like a Coca Cola or a Pepsi, right? But so I get the generic. I can totally tell the difference between Pepsi and Coke. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just yeah. well, throwing that I, I out think, there. Yeah, totally I different. <laughs> I think that the statistics are probably against you on that. But, um, but so I bring home the generic, and even my wife, who otherwise generics are kind of the way to go, even she was not happy with that because she was thinking like, well, what is this going to, how is this going to reflect on us with all my family seeing you bought the generics as opposed to your Coca-Cola paying a, basically twice the amount yeah. just for the brand, right? And that is what a competitive advantage gives you. You just you're making the same thing, but you're selling it for say fifty percent more. Absolutely. Um, do we do we want to talk a little bit about how this works out for um, for financial institutions just in general? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about financial institutions, you're you're going to want to think about your your J.P. Morgan Chases, right? Or your or your Goldman Sachs. And so, and before we start, on. I just wanna I just wanna put in there that. Um, Banking, financial stuff in general, insurance companies, REITs, all of that, all of these businesses have an extremely high barrier to entry. Like you have high capital costs, you have high regulatory requirements, you need to have a lot of knowledge. People aren't going to give you their money if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so, so that's already just in the industry. You're not going to have maybe as much proliferation as you would in other industries, say the restaurant industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a really really important point to appreciate about the financial industry. You cannot just open a bank if you want to just open a bank. I'm particularly after the Dodd-Frank and financial crisis and all that stuff. I mean, it, it costs so much and it is so complicated to get into banking nowadays that you, you really have to know what you're doing and you have to have some money behind you to get into it. So the industry dynamics are favorable. Uh, now, in terms of entry barriers, now within the industry, it's, 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 it's pretty commoditized. Yeah. Um, so unless you're able to differentiate yourself on either a cost basis like Wells Fargo has, U.S. Bank Corp has done the same thing, M&T Bank has done it. The most recent quarter, Capital One Financial, was the most efficient bank in, in the recent quarter. So, so you know, if you can differentiate yourself on cost, that's probably the kind of the default way to go. The other way is you got to differentiate your product. And if you're talking about product differentiation in the banking field, really the, the best area that I'm just 
thinking kind of out loud here, the best area where you're going to be able to identify that is in your wholesale products, your investment banking products, your trading products, all, all those types of things, you're more your Wall Street operations, where brand really, brand and quality really makes a difference. Look, if you're going to gold, Goldman Sachs, you know you're going to get a quality product. There's just no question about it. So companies that need a serious thing done, whether it's a merger and acquisition type of advisory work or something along those lines, then you're going to go to a Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan Chase. And that's where that differentiation comes in, in, in the banking sector in particular. Absolutely. The other option is to um, super to, to excel in niche-type banking things. So what I have in mind is really New York Community Bank. They specialize in multifamily loans in New York City. No yeah. one else is really as good as them at doing that particular thing in that particular city. Yeah, and, and, and that competitive, I mean, it's, again, it's a perfect example. I mean, that competitive advantage, if you chase bank, uh, New York Community Bank or its stock back to 1994, I, th- I think it was 1994 when they IPO'd, uh, it's one of, if not the highest performing bank stocks over that time period. And the reason is, to your point, because they focus in this niche areas, and you can kind of you can kind of analogize that to being a local monopoly, almost like a utility, even though it's it's not doesn't have the same level of protection. You can and you can analogize it to that roughly. That allows it to generate these higher returns than other banks. Another one that is a great example of a niche a niche bank that is able to generate outsized returns is SBB Bank out in the, out in the Silicon Valley. What they do is they focus on helping. Yeah, brand new startup technology firms get the financing and the financial products and services that they need in order to operate and succeed. And really, nobody does it as well as SVB Bank. And so that, again, just like New York Community Bancorp, you're dealing with a niche market that allows it to generate almost monopoly-like outsized returns that then translate into higher shareholder returns over an extended period of time. Exactly. Um, so just to kind of wrap up this episode, um, investors, when you are looking at investing in a company, take a look at what the industry dynamics are for competitiveness Look at and look at what your company that you're thinking about investing in. Do they have a pricing advantage? Do they have a differentiation advantage? Um, is it something that can last over a long period of time or is it just something that gives them an advantage right now? Do you have anything you want to add? No, I, I, the only thing I would say, I think Gabby, Gabby did a really good job of, 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 wrap, of wrapping that up. The only thing I would add is that, look, keep in your head that the single most, and you may, you're not going to, you know, not everybody's going to have time to just go out and read Porter's book tomorrow, right? And it's, and it's a difficult book to read. But what's important, the concept is what matters so much here. And that is that when you're picking a book, or uh, when you're picking an investment, look for companies that in some way, shape, or form, you perceive to have a durable competitive advantage, it, whatever that means to you. If you can find those, that's, that's where you're going to have your investment winners. Absolutely. So I just want to remind people, um, we on the program may have interest in the stocks that we talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you guys very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 